This excellent medical student-led podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended to be used as medical advice under any circumstance. All right, guys, welcome back. Second episode into season three. I believe it's episode 33 now. I got Nathan and Kaushik here. I'll let them say what's up. Hey, everyone. I'm Nathan Kulapur, fourth-year medical student here at Northwestern, interested in internal medicine, and we're excited for the show today. What's up, world? This is Kaushik, also fourth-year Feinberg student with Nathan. Glad to be back. And so I have some dear friends and fellow classmates, Tina and Trish, joining us on the podcast. So I will let them go ahead and introduce themselves. Hey, I'm Tina Shihada. I'm a fourth year med student at Feinberg. I'm going into diagnostic radiology. I'm originally from a suburb of Chicago. And a fun fact about me is in eighth grade, I was the school mascot. <laughs> oh, <laughs> what was your mascot? It was a, a Jayhawk. Maybe that should be off the record that I shouldn't be revealing my identity. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm Trish. I'm also a fourth year medical student at Feinberg. I'm applying into medicine, dermatology, and integrated residencies as well as dermatology. I'm originally from Bridgewater, New Jersey. And a fun fact about me is that I have a social media account dedicated to making toast. <laughs> uh-huh. Toast. What's the... <laughs> Do it? You must. I hope you're posting in a while. How often are you making toast? I mean, I make toast pretty much every day. <laughs> What's the best kind of toast you made? That was my question here. <laughs> I think the, the most recent favorite for me is this like olive focaccia that I bought. And then I put some baba ganoush, which is like a roasted eggplant spread on it with some za'atar, which is literally certain spice. Oh, <laughs> happy duty toast. <laughs> <laughs> enough, no, enough that I made an account for it. So <laughs> Great. All right, so without further ado, let's go ahead and get into the first aliquot of the case. See what's going on. So, we have a 40-year-old male with past medical history of alcohol-associated cirrhosis and chronic kidney disease, status post-combined kidney and liver transplant six months ago, and type 2 diabetes, who presents with fatigue and anemia. So, what are your initial thoughts? I guess my initial thought is like, all right, this patient's pretty young. He's already been through a lot. He has a lot of like chronic conditions. And so that actually makes the like, differential pretty wide. I think, you know, being like on the, having a transplant, you're like immunocompromised, like any infections that you're gonna have, any like complications from the transplant, also like like rejection or chronic kidney disease, all the host of things that go along with having long-term that. And then diabetes is like super common, but like there's a lot of different manifestations of that as well. Yeah, I totally agree. I think there's multiple levels of immunocompromise for this patient. And I also think about even if he has had two different solid organ transplants, he might not be at full functioning of those two transplanted organs. And they're both very vital for several different metabolic processes, which can drive fatigue and anemia. So definitely agree with the broader differential. And then it's also the the type 2 diabetes, which is also contributing to his immunocompromise. Yeah, love the other keeping a broad differential right now. And these like presenting symptoms, fatigue and anemia, like those are pretty broad, you know, chief, chief complaints. And also love that you're tuned into the fact that, you know, he's a transplant patient, autoimmune suppression, so having all those considerations. Okay. Is there other information that you would like sort of be keen on getting at this point, help further narrow your differential? I guess a little bit more about the time course of the fatigue and anemia. I'm assuming, like we've alluded to, that this patient has been through a lot of stress through surgery. So I'm curious if the fatigue is something that's been there since 
perioperative or if it's a new thing. And I'm also curious if either of the transplants were complicated by anything in the acute setting, either something like GVHD or yeah, rejection or any infections. Yeah, I think just like thinking, you know, did he feel better at some point from the transplant and or like since the transplant? And also, I think just like when you like first walk into the room and kind of like look at the patient, mm-hmm. you can kind of tell like, is this like how sick is this person? Right. And like sick this not. person I'm like picturing as someone like pretty sick, but I think someone could pre- present with fatigue and anemia and like look okay. So <laughs> I'm kind of thinking about that. Great. Great consideration. So let's get some more information, shall we? So he has been having generalized fatigue for the past two to three weeks. He's also noting new and progressive shortness of breath, also complaining of a headache for the past week. So he gets some labs done and urgent transplant related imaging before being admitted to you. So his white count is two, hemoglobin 7.2, platelets 259, sodium 132, potassium 5.8, creatinine 2.33 with a baseline of 1.6, liver panel is within normal limits. His COVID test comes back positive and then some imaging related to his transplant graphs. The renal transplant ultrasound and liver transplant ultrasound are both normal with patent vessels, normal resistant indices. So given this, yeah, what are your thoughts? How's your differential changing? So a couple of thoughts. So this patient is pretty profoundly anemic. The hemoglobin's at 7.2. We don't have a baseline, but just off the bat, that can be responsible for fatigue. Makes me worry that he might be bleeding from somewhere. Or you could think about just kidney-related failure and inadequate EPO to produce red blood cells. He doesn't have a leukocytosis, so maybe I'm less worried about an urgent infection, but he's immunocompromised, so maybe less likely to mount a neutrophilic response to infection. Mm. His creatinine is pretty elevated from his baseline. I'm assuming this is post-transplant baseline was the 1.6. So that's concerning that there's some kind of injury to the kidney. And then the COVID positivity, which I know now you were going to talk about that. His potassium is pretty high too, right? That's like a little bit worrying for like arrhythmias and things like that. Yeah, I know. I guess, yeah, COVID, I mean, that could cause fatigue, but I don't think it would be wise to like, you know, just attribute everything he's been having, which like could all be attributable to COVID. But since, as we kind of talked about, it's such a complex patient, we definitely have to rule other things out. You know, I'd be worried about someone being like uremic with that high of like creatinine. Do we know what his baseline hemoglobin is based on the evidence? Yeah, well, okay. Yeah, some really great points there. Trish, really good point about like his white cell count being low. You know, if you're concerned about infection, you know, it being low could be attributed to his immunosuppression. So we can't rule out infection just with low white count for this patient and also picking up on the creatinine and the potassium, like those could be signs of like renal injury, how you get those changes. And also really good thoughts about the COVID positivity. It's important to consider it, but given this is a very complex patient, you don't want to hang your hat on that because there's some other really dangerous things that you want to make sure to rule out. The other thing that I just was looking at is in the context of ultrasounds, I'm not particularly familiar with like the sensitivity and specificity of those or the best indications for them, but I'm assuming you can rule out like a marked stenosis of like renal arteries with the transplant ultrasound. So that's, I guess, pertinent negative here. And then we might see some signs of like fibrosis or 
like an acute renal failure potentially on the ultrasound, which maybe we're not seeing. Yeah. I think ac excellent um, like interpretation. It's great at telling you if there's a vascular problem with the transplants. So no stenosis, no thrombosis. Then you use enzymes and like creatinine as a surrogate to tell you if you should be worried about things like rejection. So I think it's pretty reassuring in this patient from a liver transplant perspective that the vessels are open, there's no blockages, and that the liver panels within normal limits. Yeah. Same with the renal transplant. Vessels are looking okay, but maybe some kind of AKI and CKD happening. And then also just wanted to like make a few points about like transplant patients. So when we think about complications these patients can have, they think about their immunosuppression, complications from either having too much immunosuppression or complications from too little immunosuppression. So if you have too much immunosuppression, you're, one thing you're prone to are infections. So we can think about community acquired infections, uh, reactivation of infections like DZV or TB. Um, they're at risk for like hospital, like nosocomial infections, things like MRSA, Pseudomonas. And then also you need to be on the watch for opportunistic infections, things like CMV, Epstein-Barr virus, pneumocystis, fungal infections, TB. So those are all infectious things you need to think about. And the other thing that can happen if you have too much immunosuppression with transplant patients is risk for malignancies. So this is driven because most of the time because of immunosuppression, but sometimes if you have concomitant viral infection that can lead to malignancy, essentially what's going on is your immune system suppressed, it doesn't have as much ability to recognize abnormal cells and eliminate them so they can proliferate and predispose you to different cancers. So some of the like most common ones are like Kaposi sarcoma, skin cancers, lymphomas, specifically like non-Hodgkin lymphomas, and also solid organ malignancies. So for liver transplant patients, they are at risk for developing hepatocellular carcinoma. Kidney transplant patients are at risk for developing renal cell carcinoma of their native kidney, not of the new transplant kidney. And also some of that patients are at risk for developing lung cancer if they've had like heart, lung, liver, or kidney transplant. And then on the other end of things, if there is not enough immunosuppression, you're at risk for rejection, like you had mentioned, Tina. So rejection actually is most likely to occur within six months from the transplant. It can happen later than that, but those instances are more likely to not following with like the treatment regimen they're on. So those can like present with sort of general symptoms, but also you can see like more specific symptoms to the organ. So like with the liver, abdominal pain, ascites, or with kidneys, like oliguria. So at this point, we got some history. We like have pretty good differential going on, you know, about infection thing, infectious causes, thinking about rejection, you know, possible malignancies. So what would you like to do next at this point? I am a little bit worried about the patients, like electrolytes and hemoglobin. Like mm -hmm. I would definitely, if not, if we don't already have it, get like a Titan screen. Yeah. Yeah. Say, how about we go to examine the patient? What are like some things you'd want to look out for on the exam, physical exam? Yeah. I think in, in terms of, I guess, you know, going by symptom or systems or like head to toe, you know, take a look at their eyes or the any signs of jaundice on their skin. I would do like a neuro exam, look for signs of like asterixis, you know, overall mental status could be affected by the, you know, AKI on CKD. Listen to the heart. Are there, is it, are they, tachycardic, do they have any arrhythmias or like, you know, irregular rates or rhythms. And in terms of like lungs, you know, they've had a new 
for preventing shortness of breath. So are there any like adventitious sounds that would be suggestive of like a pneumonia or an effusion and abdominal exam, you know, look at the like scars from the transplant, you know, see if you can palpate any masses that have any abdominal pain, maybe even like a rectal exam. Do they have any blood in the stool? Mm -hmm. Great. Yeah. All right. So let's go ahead and examine the patient. All right. So on exam for vitals, the patient is afebrile, heart rate in the 70 to 80s, blood pressure 110 to 130 over 70, respiratory rate 16 and satting 97%. He's well appearing, does not appear in any acute distress. For HE and T exam, pupils are equal and reactive to light, extraocular movements intact. There is tenderness to hard palpation of the left maxillary sinus. No proptosis, poor dentition, no skin changes, decreased sensation to the left nose and the skin over the sinus, no lymphadenopathy. For pulmonary exam, unlabored breathing, lungs are clear to auscultation, no wheezes, crackles, or ronchi. Cardiac and abdominal exam are normal. Extremities are warm, dry, no lower extremity edema, palpable pulses. For MSK, he's moving all extremities, normal bulk and tone, no spinous process tenderness to palpation. For neuro exam, he is alert and oriented and no focal deficits. So how does this exam impact your thinking? Yeah, this is kind of an interesting exam. So just looking at it from beginning to end, hemodynamically, this patient is pretty stable, static well. Most kind of abnormal thing that was pointed out is in the HEENT exam with this hard palpation of the left maxillary sinus and then the decreased sensation in a very localized distribution as well as poor dentition. And while we didn't get a lot of social history from this patient, again, he's a 40-year-old guy, so it strikes me a little bit abnormal that he has poor dentition. The localized, almost dermatomal distribution that it seems to be describing with the left nose and skin makes me worried about zoster or some kind of other viral infection that can localize there. And then also given his profuse immunocompromise as well as transplant status, diabetes, thinking about mucor, aspergillus, any sorts of infections that can enter the body and have a preference for like nasopharyngeal infiltration. But the abdominal exam being unremarkable and cardiopulmonary exam also being unremarkable is reassuring. I don't know that I was very concerned about seeing signs of liver dysfunction on exam because his LFTs were within normal limits, but it's good to see on exam. Nothing like that. And one thing that you guys mentioned during the previous aliquot was after seeing the hemoglobin of 7.2 and we didn't have a baseline for this patient. Now with these vitals and with this exam, is this a patient who you want to give blood to? No, I think just get a pipe and Pick and screen ready just in case, but yeah. not urgent. And Kaushik brings up a great point. Like with normal vitals, normal heart rate, normal blood pressure, probably a chronic process, not acute blood loss. Because if someone went from 14 to nine suddenly, their hemodynamics are probably going to change. So this person's body is adapted to their degree of anemia. One thing I was also thinking, which is like, it's actually pretty rare, but just worth considering in differential. And I also have recency bias because I saw a case today. But like with a palpation or a painful like sinuses, you know, if you're immunocompromised, you're like susceptible to EBV and there's like nasopharyngeal carcinoma, which actually can be like 
disguised as like a chronic sinusitis mm-hmm. um, and like we had an interesting case where like they just got the pathology of it and they thought it was just some like nasal mucosal like debris but it actually turned out to be like a nasopharyngeal carcinoma isn't it wow it's probably not that all right so at this point what other workup would you do at this point any like imaging that you want to get well just going back to the previous aliqua given the abnormal electrolytes i would get ekgs mm-hmm. and monitor the lights closely i'm thinking about the best sort of imaging of sinuses but definitely would consider some kind of imaging to further visualize what we're seeing potentially a ct versus an mri not not less likely an x-ray but something to visualize the soft tissues and see if you can see any changes or deformities i think a ct of i think it's like a ct maxillary I defer to the radiologist. <laughs> yeah, where I mean, you can you can see the sin like the sinuses pretty clearly. So I probably would lean towards that before doing an MR. Okay, I think I would still get a chest X-ray in this person, given his progressive shortness of breath. Interesting, nothing on exam, but I I think it's worth getting a chest X-ray. Let's see. Are we think, talking about labs as well? Yeah, I would send a pretty broad infectious workup for this guy, so he's going to get a full viral workup with EBV, CMV, all the herpes mm. viruses. I would probably send levels of all of his immunosuppressive medications that he's on because maybe he's under or over titrated. I would send blood cultures. Let me let me think. Potentially fungal cultures too, just because of his profound state of immunosuppression. And then I don't know the value of, of swabbing this patient in the nasopharyngeal area because that could give you leave me different information than from the blood. Mm. So, wow, yeah, really really good considerations there. So. We did get CT of the sinuses. So great thinking, Tina. And here is the image and here's the read. So there is one complete opacification of the left maxillary sinus, a focus of mineralization and subtle hyperattenuation in the left maxillary sinus, abnormal soft tissue with involvement of the left infraorbital nerve and canal. There is bony thinning slash erosion of the left orbital floor. Two, complete opacification of the sphenoid sinus and overall moderate sinus mucosal disease in the remaining paranasal sinuses. And three, fluid levels and or aerated secretions in the frontal ethmoid, right maxillary, and sphenoid sinuses would be consistent with acute sinusitis. All right. So what are we worried about here? Like, is this an emergency? I feel like I'm like more worried about the mucormycosis because it can cause like necrosis. And I would consider that urgent, if not emergent. Yeah, I agree. I think in, in this it, this patient, you don't think about this read as a normal run of the mill sinusitis. You would you would further work it up and especially given his like new symptoms. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So is there anyone that you would call in the hospital at this point? ENT. ENT. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So let's give them give them a ring. So they, <laughs> they come by and they do a flexible rhinoscopy. So they're finding, they have findings of no concerning lesions, areas of necrosis or purulence noted. They take them to the OR for sinusectomy and debridement, and they send off samples for path and cultures. Frozen sections are positive for fungal elements, and the patient is empirically started on amphotericin B. So. You mentioned something before, but what organism are we most worried about here that we're covering with amphotericin? So like, it's like mucormycosis, but I know there's like, aren't there like multiple bugs, like rhizopus yeah. and mucor are like two different red genus, yes, yeah. mm-hmm. that can, can cause it. Yeah, and just, I think if Trish 
mentioned earlier, thinking of like patients, it's like common if you're like immunocompromised and also patients with diabetes, particularly poorly controlled diabetes. And so that's actually something that would be good to know from the history is like how well controlled this diabetes has been. And maybe if the CKD is from the diabetes, maybe it's not controlled super well. What do you think about amphotericin B, broad or narrow? It's quite broad. broad, very broad. That's like the fungus. If you just want to get the fungus, yep. give them amphotericin B. It's all that covers mucor, or mucor too, so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and one reason we're like so concerned about mucor is it can be like very deadly, like mortality is like I think around 50% or so. so. Yeah, all right. So we have them on some broad fungal coverage with amphotericin. Let's, we'll see what happens next. So patient is still having shortness of breath. So we get CT of the chest. So these are the findings here that show one, a new patchy solid nodular densities, most prominent in the left lower lobe and also a right pleural effusion. So the pulmonary team is consulted for evaluation of bronchoscopy to help elucidate the cause of the lung lesions. They agree, bronch studies are now pending and ID adds on 16S and 18S PCR to the pathology. So I guess starting with like the imaging here, the CT of the chest, what are you thinking with these findings? I mean, I think you think of like Hickam's dictum versus Occam's razor in this case. And I'm thinking, is this an extension of this disease that we already know about with the fungal mucor that now has spread to his lungs and he has some lesions there versus does he have a new like exudative pleural effusion? Does he have new disease that's localized to his thoracic cavity? I'm still thinking about something infectious that's causing a new fluid collection in his lungs. Yeah, because originally I was worried about, you know, maybe it was like a COVID pneumonia because since we know that he's COVID positive, but this really isn't the typical like CT presentation for COVID pneumonia. It's usually more like ground glass opacities and like the peripheral lungs. These like patchy solid nodular densities, I mean, that could be in like, you know, I'm more worried about like some sort of other fungal or bacterial infection versus malignancy in that case. So, and I, I, in my head, I don't really have that many like connections between mucormycosis and like a thoracic infection. So I'm like a little worried that something else could be going on too. Are there any specific other things you think it might be? I mean, profound state of immunosuppression, I'd want to rule out any types of atypical mycobacterial infections which could have some nodular lesions. You can, I think one of the most common presentations for patients with TB is the shortness of breath and pleural fusion. So we definitely want to rule something like that out. I think the 16S, 18S PCR is interesting. I actually didn't know that we had that here, at least 18S. And I don't exactly know how it works, but I'm, I'm assuming that it can, it just like widens the panel of organisms that we can yeah, that's a great yes, question. Or- so actually great segue into like little teaching point about the 16S and 18S ribosomal RNA. So these are the RNA is like a piece of the ribosomal RNA. And so prokaryotes like bacteria, they have like different subunits, including the 5S, 16S and 23S gene. And then eukaryotes have four different subunits, 5S, 5.8S, 18S and 28S. So 16S is like specific for the prokaryotes and then the 18S is gonna be specific for eukaryotes, so like fungal organisms. Essentially what is being done is, it's like done with PCR, they amplify that section of the gene and then they sequence it and they can compare the sequence to like a bunch of known organism sequences and that's how they identify which organism it is. 
some of the advantages of this sort of testing is it allows you to do broad detection because you're like amplifying with PCR. You don't have to say know specifically beforehand what it is because you're comparing to the database. And also and this is independent of any need for cultures. So if there's organisms, you know, that take a long time to culture or it's just very difficult for whatever reason, you can sort of work around that with the 16S and 18S rRNA. So I think in terms of how long it takes to resolve, the kind of varies on institution, I think can take anywhere from a few days up to a few weeks, depending on resources, but you know, can be a helpful tool in the infectious workup. I think one thing about 18S though is like in eukaryotes, like the 18S is so, it's like variable in length, like in all bacteria, like 16S is pretty like uniformly across. Mm -hmm. And so you kind of have like a problem when you do PCR with like an 18S because you're like, if you're doing like traditional PCR, you're only getting like the ends of it. And so I actually haven't seen 18S actually be used in terms of like clinical use, uh, but I just thought it was really interesting. All right, so we have some more information now for a patient. So he undergoes thoracentesis that was exudative, but nothing grows on cultures. The bronchoscopy with BAL and biopsy demonstrate fungal hyphae, but otherwise are non-diagnostic. And pathology from ENT shows an invasive fungal infection. So what invasive fungal pathogen should we consider at this point? We've mentioned a couple of them. Aside from aspergillus and mucor, which we both talked about. Yeah. I mean, fungal hyphae, that's usually not like, I mean, blastomyces, that's usually more like yeast shape. So I forget. Do you know? Yeah, I it's think like Candida. Candida. That's, I don't, I think it depends on the temperature. Dimorphic. Like, yeah. yeah. Think about like histo, blasto, and less likely. Coxy, hera, coxy. <laughs> yeah, they describe the angle and branching. You mentioned rhizopus earlier too. Yeah, or like cryptococcus. Maybe, but that's more. Yeah, meningitis. That's most likely. Yeah. I mean, realistically, we would do a broad workum for all of these fungi because we don't know, but. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, mucor, aspergillus, rhizopus, cutting hamella, all these are like possibilities. So, the, our testing comes back, the 16S and 18S RNA. Uh, but unfortunately, it comes back negative. But we have some other testing the carious testing. Essentially, this is like a liquid biopsy for infectious disease that provides genomic insights by detecting uh, microbial cell-free DNA that's circulating in the bloodstream. And that comes back positive for aspergillus, fumigatus. Yes. So what are your thoughts now at this point, taking all into account that we've learned so far? The, this carious testing was said from the Thora uh, fluid. No, I, I think it's a blood. This is the blood. Yeah, blood. Serum. Okay. serum. I just learned about it today, actually. Okay. This is Hickam's Sigdom or Occam's Razor. I think, I'm assuming it's just like two different things. Yeah, I would think of it as Hickam's Sigdom. Yeah. Two different infectious pictures. Think about like voriconazole to add on yeah. for treatment while we're here. Yeah. All right, great work. So we have the resolution of the case here with final diagnosis of acute invasive fungal sinusitis and pulmonary aspergillosis. So, got it. And the resolution, yeah, he undergoes multiple debridements, was transitioned to boriconosol. Nice work, Trish. 
for a prolonged course. His symptoms continue to improve, and he is now doing well. So, yeah, fantastic work going through there. You guys like were spot on early. You're reasoning. You were focusing on really important things, and then took the information as it came in and worked towards these more atypical fungal infections. You were totally right to think about mucor first, because mucor is very fatal, even with treatment with amphotericin. Still, really poor outcomes. They often require massive debridements and still then the outcomes are poor. So that's a like a di a can't miss diagnosis. And so I think you were right to think about that. And fortunately for this patient, they didn't have that. All right. So to wrap up here, I just want to talk a little bit about like fungal infections for transplant patients. So focusing on like kidney and liver, because that's what's applicable to this patient. Like most common fungal infections you have are for kidney, we Canada, followed by cryptococcus, followed by aspergillus, and the liver, like most likely Canada followed by Aspergillus and Cryptococcus. So like Canada, Aspergillus, you are thinking about those. And also another thing that can help is the time course of like, where is the patient relative to their transplant? So our patient was six months out from the transplant. Sort of in that initial six months, that's when tracheobronchial Aspergillus is most likely to present. Canada infection more likely in like the three to six month range. And then other invasive forms of aspergillus, more like six to 12 months. For endemic fungi, like you mentioned, like histo and blasto, those are most commonly more of a late manifestation and occurring like over a year after initial transplant. But there is some data that suggests it might be have a bimodal distribution and also occur in that first six month period. So another thing I want to talk about, like in terms of the imaging we got, we saw the nodules and Tina, you mentioned how like, you know, it didn't seem consistent with like a COVID pneumonia. And so the pattern that we saw there, the nodules, the nodules are actually the most common radiographic finding of pulmonary fungal infections and aspergillus in particular is the most common cause of nodular pneumonia. And last point relating to like your interest in derm, Trish, for the transplant patients, because they're immune suppressed and they have like less inflammatory response, like typical like skin lesions that you normally see in fungal infections could like present very differently in these transplant patients. So even if they have they have some skin lesion that might look like a simple cellulitis, you should always like be thinking about like abnormal or like fungal infections. So you really want to get like skin biopsies in those cases. This patient didn't have any skin findings, but you know that could also be a result of like his immunosuppression in the transplant. So. Fantastic work, guys. Yeah, you guys nailed it. Any final thoughts? No, it's, yeah, lots of fun and, and nice to think about the time course with fungi, I think, can be a little bit of a black box and they're kind of cause for exclusion after you've worked up a lot of other things. We think about, oh, this might be fungal, but it's important to have it on your differential or your transplant patients. So, yeah, I think like it's a, just a good exercise to think of like immunocompromised patients and then all the different like types of infections and things that they're susceptible to. I think it's like a way to like, I think you have, you can have the full, you can have a full differential in terms of including bacteria and viruses and fungi. And like, that's just a good way to organize it and basically think they're pretty much susceptible to everything at that mm -hmm. point. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Too bad there were no skin findings. <laughs> Thanks again for listening. Person, time and place. We'll see you next time.